Allow me to add my word of welcome to you all as we are continuing in this series in First and Second Peter that we are calling Letters for Exiles. What we've been talking about over the past two weeks is how, for many of us, we feel like displaced people. Uh, so much in our world is uncertain, it's constantly changing, and we're looking for that thing, that, that thing that we can build our lives on, which gives us a sense of stability, safety, security, and peace which is why these letters are so important, because Peter writes them to those who are in exile, to people who are feeling displaced in a constantly changing, in some ways, hostile world. And as we've seen last weekend, as we were really looking at the opening of that letter, Peter gives some real words of wisdom and comfort to those who are, uh, those who are reading his letter. The Christians who were recipients of this letter were, were facing mounting pressure in the form of cultural ostracism and political oppression, and it's into that very difficult mix, Peter reminds them that God has chosen them. As we looked at the, the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, what Peter essentially says is this, he says, God has chosen us. He's given us the gift of new life and the hope of an inheritance because we are part of a much larger story. And his encouragement to them is that we are then to live differently in the world around us, seeing our time here both as a time of refinement, but also as a season for mission, as we live in light of the salvation that we've received. That's really how he opens his letter. But the question then becomes, okay, so... How do we do that? How do we actually live in light of the hope that we have? How do we live in light of the salvation we've received? What does it mean to start giving it away to others? And that really is what the rest of the letter is about. And, and that's exactly where our text for this weekend picks up. As we get into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he begins with the word, therefore. Uh, therefore, which is essentially his way of saying, all right, so in light of all of that, this is what you do. And it's really in light of everything that he said that he wants to offer them specifically four things that will help them to face the challenges before them. And the four lessons are, are these. He says, first and foremost, you need to know where you're going. Secondly, you need to know who you are. Thirdly, you need to know who you belong to. And fourth and finally, you need to know who is with you. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, or if you have your, uh, your first and second Peter scripture journal with you, go ahead and open that up with me to first Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 13. You see, the first thing that Peter tells his readers is that they need to prepare their minds for action by setting their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason he, he opens with those words is because our perspective matters. Uh, a focus, especially when we're facing adversity, we can get so wrapped up into the challenges that are in front of us that we forget where we're going. And then Peter says, I need you to remember where you're headed, what your ultimate destination is. You need to know where you're going. In short, he wants them to focus on the hope that belongs to them. And, and I love that that's where he starts. He says, you have to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I feel like we have to unpack this word hope for a moment because nowadays, hope seems like a fairly cheap word. We tend to throw the word hope around when it's like, well, I, I hope it's not going to rain today or I hope it's going to get cooler soon. We, we, tend to, we tend to throw this word around like hope is basically synonymous with wishful thinking. 
But that's not at all how Peter uses this word. When Peter talks about hope, what he's talking about is he's talking about confidence. He says, I want you to have confidence in the fact that Jesus is going to come again. I want you to have confidence that just as he came once, lived, died, and rose again, so his promise is that he will return and make all things new. You can have confidence in that because Jesus has done it once before. He's already come to us once. We, we, we saw him as he lived, as he preached, as he healed. We watched as he was crucified, and then we encountered him when he rose again. And if he's able to do all of that, you can be confident that he will come again one day. And that hope, that kind of hope, enables us to face the challenges that are in front of us. As I think about that, I actually think about a story uh, that I heard several years ago. I was reading through the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins. And as uh, Jim Collins was talking about those organizations and businesses that kind of uh, stand the test of time, the ones that are able to move through adversity, he talked about the Stockdale paradox. He says that if you're really going to have resilience and be able to face difficulty, you need to live in this idea that, that a man by the name of Jim Stockdale personally learned. The Stockdale paradox really comes from his story. You see, Jim Stockdale was an admiral during the Vietnam War. And at one point, he was actually captured and he was put in a prisoner of war camp. And while he was there, he experienced immense hardship and torture. And yet, when he was rescued, people asked him how he was able to survive. And he said that he learned an attitude that I think is exactly what Peter is talking about here. People said, you know, how is it that you were able to survive the prisoner of war camp when so many other soldiers didn't make it? And he said, well, I, as I looked around at many of the, my fellow prisoners, I saw that there were two attitudes that didn't serve them very well. There were some who were overly optimistic. They were the ones who were saying, don't worry, we're going to be rescued by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and there'd be no rescue. And then they'd say, don't worry, we're going to be rescued by Easter. And then Easter would come and go and we weren't rescued. And over time, that just wore down their optimism because it was just, they, they, they thought that this was true, but they had no reason for believing it really. And, and that optimism eventually broke down in the face of the brutal realities that they were facing. So the second attitude that really wasn't helpful were those who, who would look at the brutal facts of their situation and then they would just cave into despair. They'd say, there's no way we can possibly survive. This is too overwhelming. They became depressed, suicidal. They ultimately just gave up. He says, but, but for, for me, what I, I had to do is I had to hold together two seemingly contradictory ideas. One was that I had to face the brutal facts of where we were. We were in a prisoner of war camp. We didn't know when we were going to be rescued. We were at the mercy of our guards. We had to be honest about that so that we didn't fall prey to, to irrational optimism. But at the same time, we needed to believe that we would prevail if we didn't give up. That if we can make it through each and every day supporting and encouraging one another, we could get through this. That's the Stockdale paradox. Being willing to face the brutal facts uh, that they were encountering, but also believing that they would prevail in the end if they didn't give up. That's what I would call hopeful realism. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. He says, you have something better than Stockdale. Because you know the one who has called you according to his name. His name is Jesus. And you know that he's already overcome immeasurable odds. He entered into our world out of love for us. 
He faced rejection, torture, and ultimately death, but even death couldn't hold him. He walked out of his tomb three days later. He rose again in time and space and history, and we know that that's true. And just as he was able to do that, so he will come again. He says, we can have hope in the face of our adversity because we know that Jesus wins. We know that he's already overcome. And that kind of hopeful realism will help us to face the challenges of today. And so that really is kind of the first application point from this message is to face the challenges of today in light of the victory of eternity. What would it look like for us as people if instead of focusing on the odds that we're facing, we approach them with the idea of saying, I know where my eternity lies, so I'm going to live today in light of that victory. What if we, we, we looked at our circumstances and we said, I know that they're hard. I know that this is difficult, but I also believe that Jesus is with us and that he will overcome. I mean, I think that, that too many Christians kind of fall prey to exactly the same thing that many of those soldiers in the prisoner of war camp fell into. They either just give up in the face of the overwhelming odds that they're facing, or they have this kind of unhealthy optimism. They tend to believe that if I simply follow Jesus, that should mean that my life is easy and that I won't face real hardship. But, but Jesus never promises that. Actually, I think it's instructive to note in John 16 that Jesus says pretty blatantly to his disciples, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. You shouldn't expect it to be easy. You're going to face difficulties, hardships. You're going to face insurmountable odds which threaten to overwhelm you. Jesus is really blunt about that, very realistic about the world we live in. But then he goes on and says this. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says the victory is mine. You can trust me that I can carry you through it and that ultimately victory will come. And that helps us to face those challenges with this kind of hopeful realism, with a deep confidence in Jesus and what he's able to do. And that brings us to our next point. He says, in addition to knowing where you're headed, you need to know who you are. Once you know your eternity, it actually kind of changes how you think about yourself and your present circumstances. And that's why Peter then tries to focus his readers back on their identity. Here's what he writes in verses 14 to 16. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says, Who you are is your holy people. And again, I think we have to do a little bit of defining here because we typically tend to think that holiness is something that we have to earn. We read this line as a command. God is holy, so you be holy. But actually, it's less of a command and more of a reminder. And here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, holiness was a status that was given, not something that was earned. And we actually see this in the context of the very passage that Peter is quoting here. If we look back to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 42 to 45, this is actually the context in which God says that. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I'm holy. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you didn't earn your holiness. I made you holy. It's written in the context of God actually rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. He's already brought them through the Red Sea. He's already told them that they are his people. And what he's saying is he's saying, and because I am a holy God, you are now my holy people. 
That's exactly the context in which Leviticus chapter 11 is given. He's saying that they were rescued into their holiness. God saved them and set them apart for himself. It's not something that they have to earn. It's who they already are. And again, that's an important application point for us because basically what Peter is saying is he's saying, you just need to be who you are. How you think about yourself changes everything about what you do. And Peter is making it very clear, you are already a holy people, so act like it. You see, the truth is we we all build our lives upon something. We all find our our identity in something that we worship. And, And that is not a neutral thing. What you build your life upon, how you understand, your, uh, who you understand yourself to be matters immensely for, for ultimately where you're going to end up. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this came from the noted author, David Foster Wallace. Uh, David Foster Wallace actually was not a believer. He was an agnostic, and yet he gave a really fascinating commencement address at Kenyon College. And I want you to hear what he has to say about identity and what we build our lives upon. Here's what he says. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of feeling of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. See, Wallace says how you think about yourself, what you build your life on matters. It's not neutral. And, it's, and, and, and if, you are, if you are here, if you're in church this weekend, if you're worshiping with us online, it's because you know that the ways of the world just don't satisfy. You're looking for something more. You know that this is true deep down in your core, that, that to try and find your identity in your job or in your achievements or in relationships or in your own beauty or your own intelligence, you know that that's not enough. You long for something solid upon which to build your life. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. He's saying you have a better calling, a deeper identity, one that is given to you and can never be taken from you because it's not based on other people's acceptance, nor is it based on your performance. It's a status that is yours because God gave it and it can never be taken away. He says it's a better life, a better identity beyond the papier-mâché masks that we construct for ourselves. We know that we are a holy people who are claimed by a holy God. And that gets us to the third thing that Peter says, you need to know who you belong to, who you belong to. This is what he talks about in verses 17 to 21. 
And, and what I love is that he actually puts two seemingly contradictory ideas together. He says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I love that there's these two ideas. He says, on the one hand, you call God your father, but on the other hand, conduct yourselves with fear. And as modern people, we read that and we're like, how do those two things go together? Because honestly, sometimes for us, those two things go together in not a really good way. I'm fully aware that it's Father's Day uh, and that, that some of us have great relationships with our fathers, but others of us don't. And then when it talks about fearing your dad, it's because there's been a history of pain and hurt and hardship, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. You see, we tend to think of fear as something negative, something unhealthy, something paralyzing akin to, to things like anxiety. But that's not how the Bible speaks of fear. There is a healthy kind of fear, a type of fear that puts everything else into perspective. The book of Proverbs puts it incredibly well when it says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, why? Well, because when you fear the right things, you suddenly are set free from the fear of the wrong things. I think an illustration will really help here. When I was growing up, uh, one of the Disney movies that came out was The Lion King. And there's this great scene uh, in The Lion King where the little lion cub Simba has decided to go visit uh, the elephant graveyard, a place that his father and his mother said you should never go to because they knew it was dangerous. And sure enough, while he's there breaking the rules, they get cornered by some hyenas that have been chasing them and hunting them down. And, and finally in that corner, little Simba, like he's backed up to the wall and he decides he's going to try and let out a roar uh, to intimidate the hyenas. And so he opens his mouth and it comes out as meow. And obviously the, he, the hyenas just start laughing and they start kind of teasing him. They're like, is that all you have? Is that all you have? And so finally, Simba, one more time, he takes a deep breath. But instead of this little meow coming out, this loud, thunderous roar erupts. And it's then that he turns around and he sees his dad is behind him. And the great Lion King jumps into the fray and chases off the hyenas and rescues Simba. And in that moment, Simba's like relieved that he's been rescued. But then his dad turns around and looks at him and Simba just curls up into this tiny little boy, uh, this tiny little ball. And then uh, his father Mufasa and that great deep James Earl Jones voice says, Simba, come with me. And he, and he starts to talk to Simba about what he's been doing. And Simba said, I just wanted to be like you because you're never afraid. And his dad says, I was afraid today. I was afraid that I was going to lose you. You see, Simba's dad was the scariest thing on the savannah. No one could go toe-to-toe with him, not even Simba. And yet, his dad loved him. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. He's saying, God is your father. He is the scariest thing in the universe. With a word, he could obliterate galaxies. And yet, in his love, he embraces you as his children. And when you fear him, when you have awe and reverence before that reality, all other fears fade away. Because we can go through our lives fearing God or fearing everything else. So many of of us build our lives on the basis of what we're afraid of 
trying to avoid pain or loss or judgment or being excluded. And yet, in the face of those, we often feel crushed and overwhelmed. But what what Peter wants us to understand is that when we realize that God, the scariest thing in the universe, is actually our Father who loves us and who defends us and protects us, all other fears melt away. In fact, this is something Jesus himself told his disciples. He says, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. When we realize the immensity of God, we realize he is worthy of fear, but when we also realize he's our loving father, all fears melt away because he's the one who loves us and who defends us. And when you know that, you don't have to be afraid of anything else. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do we really fear? And to bring those fears before God in in the presence of whom all other fears melt away. And that brings us to the fourth and final point You need to know who is with you. Peter makes this interesting turn after talking about the the love of God our Father by saying this. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He says that just as God is your father, you now are part of a new family, a group of people who are on this journey with you, which means that you don't face your trials and your challenges alone. You face it side by side with your brothers and sisters who love you and whom you are called to love. That's why he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And honestly, again, there's just, we have to do some unpacking here because we have uh, such a bankrupt understanding of love. We tend to think of love as an emotion and as the heart, as the, as the seat of the emotions. But that basically means that we're not required to love people until we feel like it. And they're not required to love us until they feel like loving us. And that, that's the reason why I think we have such a poor notion of love, why love seems so bankrupt and fickle and why people are falling in and out of love and relationships form and break apart just as fast is because we don't understand what the Bible's talking about here, what love truly is. When Peter talks about loving each other from a pure heart, this is what he means. In the ancient world, the heart was not the seat of the emotions. The heart was the center of your will. It was the core of your being. So that what you do from your heart is where you make those ultimate decisions. And when he says love each other from a pure heart, what he's saying is he's saying love is a willful act. It's a choice. It's something that we do. Love is active. It's a decision. It doesn't depend on the other person whether they've earned it or not. It doesn't depend on how we feel in the moment. It's a posture that we have toward one another. And he's saying, that's what we're called to do. That in the family of God, we actively love and serve one another. And I love that he draws it right back to the word of God. He says, you do this through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He says, our job as Christians, as people in the family called the church, 
is to remind each other of the Father's love in word and deed, to serve and to care for one another, to point each other back to the hope that we have in him, the kind of never-ending love that we ourselves have received. He says, that love which you've been given is now yours to give away. And so the question is, what's your relationship to the family of God? Maybe you're not a part of the church yet. You've been looking for a community where you can get plugged in. This is the place. This is the place where we're called to help each other look, live, and love more like Jesus, where we've decided and, and covenanted together to live out that mission, and you are welcome here. Or maybe you've had a rough relationship within the church. Maybe there's some fellow Christians that you've actually been having a hard time with. The question is, are you willing to love them even in spite of some of the, the, the brokenness in the relationship? Are we willing to love those who are difficult to love, to extend service and kindness to them in a way that points them back to Jesus? That's our calling. Now, in the rest of 1 Peter, he's going to get into even more practicals when it comes to specifically those hard relationships. But the first thing that we need to understand to be reminded of right here is that we give the love that we've received. We choose to do that as an act that points other people to Jesus. And, we know, and when we know where we're going, who we are, who we belong to, and who's with us, it enables us to face the challenges in the world around us because our identity is rooted in something that is lasting. The love of our Father, who calls us his holy children and welcomes us into one family that we might walk forward together in faith with a hopeful realism that transforms even the darkest of circumstances. And so it's with that in mind, I wanna pray for us as we seek to live that out this week. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that though we don't deserve it, you call us your children. You who are so immense, address us in love. That you call us your holy people and you put us together in a family so that we can face the challenges and the adversities of the world around us. Lord, help us to build our life on that. To be a kind of people who point people to your love and your grace in the midst of challenges and trials. So that people would know the love that only you can give a love that truly is from everlasting to everlasting, the hopeful assurance of what is and what will one day will come to be, your glorious return in which you make all things new. It's in light of that hope that we say, Amen, come Lord Jesus.